turn to Galatians chapter 3. We will look at uh, verses 15 through 18 this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege it is to address the Almighty God with that name, Father. We know it's not something within us, but we are by nature wretched sinners, children of the devil. But in love you predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to come to you as a child in need comes to his father for help. Like children, we are weak. There's much we can't do ourselves, and we need you. And this morning, we can't attune our own hearts to receive your word. I can't rightly divide it or explain it by myself. Um, Your Son taught us that if our fathers, being evil, know how to give us good gifts, how much more will you give us the Holy Spirit if we ask? So we ask now that your Spirit will help us to, to speak, to hear, to receive your word, so that in Jesus we might live in a manner pleasing to you, our Father. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Stand for the reading of God's Word, Galatians 3:15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Paul continues here in his uh, biblical and theological argument that justification is by faith, apart from works of the law, and it's obtained by the work of Christ through our faith in Him as the instrument. And in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he showed that by experience we receive and, and live in the Holy Spirit Um, Not by works of the law, but by faith. And then in 6 through 9, he said that those of faith are the people who are heirs of Abraham's promise, just like Abraham was heir of faith, or or had faith. And in uh, 10 through 14, he showed that the law can only result in the disfavor of the Lord, and it is actually insufficient to justify us or to make us righteous in God's sight. Instead, that Jesus bore the curse of the law for us. So, by faith we are heirs according to the promise and have the promised Holy Spirit. In this text, Paul's beginning, um, and it's a prolonged argument, but he begins to answer the question, uh, what about Moses? What about the law? Because the the false teachers were surely asking questions like that. Are you despising the law? 
Paul. Are, are you forgetting circumcision is the way into the covenant of Abraham and that obedience to Moses is, is the way we live out that identity? Or, or didn't the Mosaic epoch change the way that God deals with man? Or didn't he tell Israel if they obeyed the law, then they would inherit the land? All these questions begin to arise. And Paul will here begin to address them. And he begins his answer in uh, our text this morning by stubbornly saying, No, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring was a promise. And it's fulfilled by his grace. And if it's a promise, then it's not fulfilled or, or obtained by law keeping, but by grace. So these passages in chapter 3 are, are difficult passages. They're rigorous argumentation. They're very doctrinal in nature. So I expect the sermons that I preach on these passages to reflect that uh, reality. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I'll enjoy saying it anyway. Doctrine is good for the soul. Doctrine grounds us. So we aren't tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine. Um, And these things that he's teaching us are absolutely foundational. Justification by faith alone. How do we read our Bibles? How do we understand the covenants and their relationships to one another? How does God relate to man? These are foundational things. The stones upon which the rest of the house is built. Um, So... Borrowing from, from John Piper and, and Brian Borgman, they, they said that these messages are not for people looking for a spiritual pet pill. Galatians 3 is a thinking cap chapter, so we can expect to get into some thinking cap topics. But as Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. So we will enjoy studying uh, these passages together. Um, and so my plan for this morning is to try to go through and explain this text first, and then we'll go back after that and consider a few theological and application um, points that we can draw from the text. So I want to begin with kind of an overview of my understanding of this text in 15 through 18, kind of a, a summary in just a few paragraphs, and then we'll, we'll go in a little bit deeper. Um, but we'll try to understand Paul's flow of thought first. If we begin by trying to understand the structure of these verses, I think it will make it easier for us to grasp Paul's flow of thought. Uh, for me, these verses would make a lot more sense. It would be easier to understand if verse 16 wasn't in there. <laughs> I mean, just, just read it without verse 16. It would flow so much better. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. Verse 16 makes things much more complicated. And for me, it helps me to understand 16 as a few things. First, I kind of label it as the parties. The people to whom the the promises were given, with whom the covenant was ratified. So verse 16 is talking about the parties of the covenant. Which are Abraham and his offspring. And as we'll see, his offspring is primarily Christ and those who believe in him. It also helps me to read uh, verse 16 as something of a parenthetical comment. Um, Moises Silva says, he, he says, we, must, we might paraphrase it thus. 
Even a human arrangement, if ratified by God, cannot be altered. Similarly, God ratified his promises to Abraham and his seed. And, by the way, we know that the seed refers to Christ, as the singular should remind us. Let me be clearer. The law cannot alter the Abrahamic covenant. I think that's a good summary and a good way of paraphrasing it and putting verse 16 in kind of a parenthetical. So his flow of thought um, flows, kind of does flow from from 15 to 17. Silva, Moises Silva. Um, So if we're going to understand the text, we need to understand what role 15 through 18 plays in Paul's broader argument. And really, here it's a, a redemptive historical argument. It's not so much exegetical or, or experiential like it was in verses 1 through 5, but it's a redemptive historical argument. And in short, the Galatians and the false teachers in Galatia were reading their Bibles wrong. They were misconstruing the nature of the covenants and how they related. Paul's clarifying the nature of the covenant. He's teaching them covenant theology. They were saying something like, the Mosaic Law was an extension or a clarification or amendment to the covenant with Abraham. Circumcision is the initiatory right into the family of Abraham. And once in, you must obey the food laws, etc. So Sinai was this addition or amendment, it seems, to them to the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul says, okay, wait, wait a minute here and think about the nature of covenants. Even man-made covenants, think about how they work. You don't go back in and change a covenant once it's been ratified, once it's been established. I can't say to my wife, well, you no longer interest me, so I'm going to go back and rewrite my, my covenant vows to you. And say, instead of until death do his part, I'll, I'll say, or until I grow disinterested. I can't put that back in my original vows. Paul's pointing out here, once a covenant has been ratified, it cannot be changed or annulled. And the covenant was ratified with the parties, like I said, Abraham and his seed. And the promises as part of a covenant cannot be changed. For example, from a unilateral covenant in which God acts alone to a conditional covenant in which we're required to obey to receive the promises given. As with all the promises of God, they are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So in a typological and eschatological sense... Christ is that offspring, singular, of Abraham. He, he is true Israel. He is the rightful heir of Abraham's promise. So since the promise was given to him, it must be fulfilled to him. And as we'll see, by virtue of our union with him, to us as well. So he goes on and he says, Moses, who came well after the promise to Abraham, cannot change the promise. Um, God did not pass through the split carcasses as the the smoking pot um, by himself to only later change his unilateral covenant to a a, uh, conditional covenant. The promise either comes by promise, by grace, or it comes by law, by works. There's no middle ground. The covenant with Moses or really the covenant with Israel, did not annul the promise to Abraham. So to kind of summarize the whole verses 15 through 18, the main point of these verses is that 
inheritance of the Abrahamic promises is a matter of faith, not of works of the law. Because God's promise to Abraham was a promise to be believed, not a wage to be earned. The promise cannot be annulled by another covenant. Inheritance was given by grace to Abraham as a promise. So that's that's a quick overview, a lot packed in there, so we'll try to go through the text a little slower now and unpack that a little more. Um, so first off, notice here the change in his tone um, from verse 1 in chapter 3 where he called them fools, <laughs> you foolish Galatians, to brothers here in this verse. Um, he, he, he's not given up hope on the Galatians. They are foolish to flirt with false doctrine. And he, he, he still counts them among the family of God, however. He still believes they are sons of Abraham. And his aim here is not to convert them, but actually really to sweep the leg of the false doctrine by, by saying, you already are sons of Abraham. You don't need to buy into all this stuff these, these false teachers are selling you. Paul illustrates his point with something that we all know, we all understand from from our lives. He says in 15, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So again, we can't go back and change our marriage vows. Um, A a will is another example. I I can't go in and change my parents' will so that I get 99% and my brother and sister share one half of the rest of 1%. And my parents are the only ones who can change it. And once they're dead, no one can change it. So we don't go in and change a covenant uh, once it's been ratified. And this is obvious to us. And as Paul says... Really, here, that's exactly what you're trying to do to the Abrahamic covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring, and it was this this unilateral covenant where God promised to act. And he said, I will do this. I will make you a great nation. I will give you the promised land. I will be your God. So whatever it was that God did by bringing in the Mosaic covenant, by bringing in the law, it, whatever he did there, it was not to make it a condition by which we obtain the Abrahamic promise. And we will, we will uh, discuss much more in the future texts about what exactly God did do with the law. But he did not make the Abrahamic promise conditional by bringing in the law. And it's important here to know with whom the covenant was made, the the parties. So in verse 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now people get all hung up on this offspring thing. Um, and it's, it's confusing a little bit because it's a collective singular noun. It's obvious that that's the case. And it almost seems like Paul's kind of trying to pull a rhetorical fast one here on, on these folks. But Paul knows, of course, that it's a collective singular. And first of all, he knows because in verse 29 he uses it in that way. Um, chapter 3, verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. <laughs> singular, collective singular referring to all of us. So he knows it's a collective singular. And second, he knows that the promise was 
originally made, not just with Christ, but all of Abraham's offspring, plural, um, not uh, through, through Isaac. So what I think Paul's doing here, he's, for one thing, using a familiar device. Uh, Silva, again, points to a, a, an example of rabbinic midrash in which, um, commenting on Genesis 4 and, and the story of Abel being killed, it uses this word bloods instead of blood. And the, the midrash comments on it. It says that it's not uh, written your brother's blood, but your brother's bloods his blood and the blood of his descendants. And there's a several other examples in kind of in Jewish rhetoric that this was a common way of kind of bring, make, bringing out a point. And so he's probably using a similar device. And, and Silva also points out here helpfully that this singular offspring idea is not like the linchpin nail in the coffin for, for Paul's argument. The, the people he's talking to, even the false teachers, were professing Christians. They probably already believed that uh, Christ was this seed of Abraham. So he really, he's just bringing out a point. Um, now, a little bit more importantly, as with all of God's promises, we have to understand the singular offspring here is typological and eschatological, and it's fulfilled in Christ. This is how Paul reads his Old Testament. And really, this is even how Abraham understood um, the promises of the covenant. Hebrews says that he never received the things promised to him, but he saw them and greeted them from afar. But he was seeking a better country, that is, a heavenly one. So even Abraham understood that the covenant promises were were something eschatological and and typological. Um, In Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham believed that he would inherit the land of Canaan. In, in Romans 4, it says he believed he would inherit the world. So even Abraham knew that these promises are bigger than Isaac. These are bigger than the land of Canaan. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this building anticipation of the one who would come, the Messiah, from the seed of the woman, from uh, the seed of Abraham, from the prophet who would come that's like Moses, from the king who would reign on David's throne. Um, There's this anticipation, growing anticipation, that this one man, this one offspring, would come and that all of God's promises to really uh, the collective nation of Israel would be subsumed under him. They would be fulfilled in him. One good example of this, Hosea 11, where he, he says, Out of Egypt I called my son, Israel. It specifically says Israel. And then it's applied to Christ later in Matthew chapter 2 when um, Jesus and his parents go to Israel, Egypt and then come back. So um, Jesus does represent the nation of Israel and is the new Israel. And so, for more important for our issue for understanding Paul's argument, and more than getting hung up on this word offspring, is we need to understand who are the recipients of the promise. Paul's point in bringing up the singular offspring of Abraham is that the promises of the covenant were made to Christ. And the only way that a a covenant can be um, completed is if the obligations have been fulfilled. So they can't be fulfilled before the the heir of the promise is even born. 
how, how could the Sinai covenant annul or add to the Abrahamic covenant when its primary recipient <laughs> was yet to be born? If I tell my kids, when Cohen gets home from school, you can have a cookie. But then, in the meantime, I tell Zoe, well, you can have a graham cracker if you clean up your toys. And then when Cohen comes home, I say, well, you can have a cookie if you guys clean up your toys, because that's what I said. My second promise, with the conditions, is annulling the first. And I'm applying um, conditions to, to one audience that I never gave to that audience, and... Uh, changing the original covenant. So this is in essence what Paul is dealing with here in Galatians. The Mosaic Law was a conditional covenant given to a particular people in a particular time, namely to the nation of Israel as they are going into the promised land. And the Abrahamic promises were given for a particular people in time, namely to Abraham and to his seed as an eternal covenant. So the audience of the promises is important to us because those promises are still valid to the people with whom the promises were given, or to whom they were given. And the means by which they're obtained are still valid as well, namely promise and not works. God will give the inheritance to those people He has promised to give it to, and we don't obtain them through law, but by promise. So this is really what Paul says as he, he restates his point. He re-clarifies his point in verse 17 and states it more clearly and more directly. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So really, that's very clear. That's very direct now. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God to make the promise void. Exodus 12 says that the people were in exile in Egypt for 430 years. So 430 years is in this precise timeline from Abraham's covenant to the Mosaic covenant. It's more a rough time frame from the patriarchs to who were the original um, receivers of the promise to uh, the time of Moses. But really, the, the point is that the law, which came well, well, well after the Abrahamic promise, can't void that original promise. And notice here Paul's theology and his hermeneutic. They, they don't have a gray area here. There's no middle ground. Either inheritance comes by law or it comes by promise. I mean, obtaining the inheritance by law was never even an option for anybody. It's given by promise. In verse 18, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. That's an amazing uh, clause, and it's even more impressive in the Greek, um, particularly the, this word gave. He gave it to Abraham by a promise. It's not the normal word for, for to give. Uh, it's the Greek word charizomai, which the Greek word for grace is charis. So you can hear that word grace. It's not just giving, but it's a gracious giving. 
We could translate it, God has graced it to Abraham by a promise. Romans 8.32 uses the, the same word. Charismai, he says, um, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's that same word. So he didn't just give it to him, he graciously gave He graced it to Abraham. Also, this is a, a perfect tense verb, which in Greek communicates that it's a past action with continuing results. And it's a little bit of a unique one here, too. Greek uh, grammarian Daniel Wallace describes it in this usage and in this context as a perfect of allegory, which he says is viewed in terms of its applicational value. In, In other words, we could translate verse 18, but God has graciously given and continues to graciously give the inheritance to Abraham by a promise. It's a beautiful thing. So, that's an explanation as best I'm able in this time frame to explain it. I think, again, Silva here is helpful in summing up the thrust of the passage. Um, he, He says, The primary thesis of this passage is that the principle of inheritance by law is incompatible with the principle of inheritance by promise. But since the giving of the law cannot annul the prior giving of the promise, it follows that the law was not given for the purpose of providing inheritance, life, and righteousness. So the primary thesis of the passage is that that inheritance by law is incompatible with inheritance by promise. And before we close, I just want to make a few considerations on um, doctrinal and practical application to our thinking and life um, that emerge from this this thesis. And the first is that really this passage in in this chapter have enormous impact on how we read our Bibles. Particularly, how, how do we read the Old Testament? And we have to understand when we read our Bibles that God has one unfolding from beginning to end plan of redemption. And we'll do more of a deep dive into the role of the law and the Mosaic Covenant in the coming weeks as Paul gets into that. But Paul is quite plain here. The Mosaic Covenant is not an amendment or clarification or update to the Abrahamic Covenant. The the New Covenant is a fulfillment of, of the Abrahamic Covenant. So as we read our Bibles, we should pay particular attention to its overarching continuity. As Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 7, which is on the covenant. It's a great uh, read if you're wanting to study covenants. But section 6 says that there are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations or administrations. One covenant of grace, all the way through from the fall, Genesis 3.15, to the end of Revelation. So practically speaking, what does that mean for us? Well, it means God has a single plan of salvation, and plan A works and is continuing to work for Him. 
It means God has one people, not two peoples. It means God's means of salvation is the same as it has always been, grace through faith apart from works. It means the object of our faith is the same. That is Christ. The Old Testament saints look forward to the Messiah. We look back. And it means that God is consistent. He's not a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. He is consistent. As a point of doctrine, our dispensational brothers seem to miss this point. Um, Each successive dispensation is is kind of almost a new, fresh way uh, of God dealing with His people. And each tends to be viewed almost as a law-based test in which Israel consistently fails. And then he tries a new plan. In the New Testament, it seems to be viewed as a testament of grace where the Old Testament was a testament of law. And to me, I think it would be so helpful if we labeled our Bibles differently. If instead of Old Testament, New Testament, what about this? We'll work together to change this in the world from here on. Okay, Try this one out. What about the age of promise and age of fulfillment? So much better. So I believe this text and the ones coming, for me, definitively answer that plaguing question of what about the Jews? What about Israel now? Our dispensational brethren would say, God has promised to Abraham that the Jews would have the land, so he will give them that promise. But I think if we understand the promises in a typical logical and eschatological way, like Paul does, like the writer to the Hebrews does, um, like Abraham does, like Jesus does, we understand that Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. Jesus is Israel. So to me, it's the most straightforward reading, and really, uh, Reformed folks are accused of being not very literal on this point, but I think it's the most literal reading of Scripture to say those promises are being fulfilled to Christ, who is Israel. Abraham was looking not for Canaan, but for a better homeland, a heavenly one. And Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. One more practical doctrinal point here. Uh, I've been listening to more and more um, of a minister by the name of Brian Borgman out in, in uh, Las, or Nevada, not Las Vegas, Minden, Nevada. He's really... I mean, if you want to hear just like straight exegesis, this guy, I don't know if you've ever listened to him, but I recommend Brian Borgman. He's, he's a Reformed Baptist, but he has his degrees from Westminster, so he's hung out with Presbyterians a lot. And in his sermon on this text, he complained about Paedo-Baptists and Presbyterians flattening out the Bible. He, he's of the opinion that we don't properly account for the discontinuity between Old Testament and New Testament as you'd expect from a Baptist. Um, And as much as I respect him, I disagree with him. I think if there's anything that shines through in Galatians 3, it's the persistence of the Abrahamic covenant and the continuity of the covenant of grace. In other words, I think our Baptistic brethren flatten out the Old Testament and make it one testament, the testament of law, much like our dispensational brothers. 
So I think in so doing and kind of mushing all the covenants in the Old Testament together into one covenant, they are then throwing out the baby with the baptismal font water, if you will. (laughs) So I bring up these issues not to bash the brothers that I disagree with. You may disagree with me. Um, But the point is, how we read our Bibles matters. Notice on these issues, our eschatology, our understanding of baptism, our understanding of the law, all these tricky issues that Christians debate over and even split over, all come back to one issue. How do we read our Bibles? Those issues we debate about and even the ones we divide over, they matter. And they matter because, for one thing, obedience matters. And because understanding God's Word in the details matters. And because knowing God matters. But they also matter because our our hermeneutic, our interpretive method, influences not only those secondary issues, but also primary issues. And it should be consistent with with both the primary and secondary issues. So, if you disagree with me about baptism or or Israel, um, that's fine. But I just ask that you have a hermeneutic that's consistent, that accounts for the broad sweeping um, scope of the Bible and the covenant of grace, and that Christ is the recipient of all God's promises. Uh, for Paul here, the, again, this point of, of application is, is that it, these texts affect how we understand how to read the Bible. And for Paul, he reads his Bible with Jesus at the center. He reads his Old Testament with Jesus at the center. And we can take that too far and find Christ in every little nook and cranny and corner of the Bible that the Holy Spirit never intended. Um, But it's true that the current of the grand flow, the sweeping narrative of the Bible, is always pushing us toward Christ. As Jesus said in John 5, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Paul and Jesus alike read the Old Testament not as a series of disconnected stories or proverbs and words to live by, but they read it in light of the big picture, the grand sweeping narrative that has Christ at its center. And we should read it the same way. The second practical point here from these verses is that the main point, really, inheritance is never, never earned. We, we need to look to the object of our faith rather than to our own works. One sentence kind of struck me as I was writing it from, from an earlier point that was that obtaining inheritance by law-keeping was never even an option. Never even an option. If Israel hypothetically would have kept the law perfectly... Would they have obtained the Abrahamic promise as a reward? No. A promise is a promise, not a wage. Now I was thinking about it, and you can correct me if I'm confused on this point. I can't think of any text that contradicts this. Not even Jesus earned the Abrahamic inheritance. Certainly by his active obedience, he was righteous and pleasing before God. He, he won for us salvation and righteousness. Um, he imputed righteousness to us, and he definitely purchased the people. It was certainly his work that made the promise 
possible or brought out its fulfillment. But Jesus' inheritance was given to him for no other reason really than that he was the offspring of Abraham. Promises are not earned. And that's a beautiful thing. That's the beautiful thing that we glean from this text. God's promises cannot be merited. They're a pure gift. They're charismai, the gracious, benevolent gift of God. Whatever law-keeping we can manage to scrape together is of no account in earning us the inheritance of Abraham. The inheritance was graced to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, by a promise, and we partake of the same promise by faith, uniting us to that offspring. So that it's really true what he says in verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Amen.